That was the goal, folks. 1972. It's been still, I mean, it's still talked about amongst so many of us. Were you alive then? What were you doing then? It was huge. It was, there was a mystique about the Russians and, uh, we were supposed to clean their clocks and they ended up kind of taking us to the mat and we were worried, you know? We're Canadian hockey players. What's the go? Well, looking forward to speaking with this next guest, Mr. Paul Henderson. And Paul, actually, believe it or not, Paul was our first guest on the Drew Marshall Show. Our very first guest. How do you like that? And he's back again like a recurring nightmare. Paul, good to uh, certainly have you again on the show. Well, it's good to be back, Drew. Yeah, you uh, you and I have known each other for a, probably about, let me just think this through for you, about 20 years just through our association with Teen Ranch. And uh, I want to thank you for being a consistent role model for me. You're a guy who, uh, I don't know whether you like this kind of uh, accolades thrown at you or not, but when I think of Jesus guys who don't quit, I think of you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're not a wimp. <laughs> well, I hope not. And I remember, I remember you getting stuck into me one time. You said to me... Um, Hey, you want to come out to one of our men's breakfast, you know, things or whatever? And I said, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, that'd be good. And then I found out it was like 6 in the morning or something like that, you know. And that was back at a time in life when 6 in the morning was not a reality for me. And you were like, come on, man, are you are you, are you you serious about this or not? <laughs> well, I, I get there at 6. The other guys get there at 6.30, so it wasn't quite that bad. <laughs> but I thought it was a little scary. you got to find out how interested you are. Yeah, <laughs> it does work. Paul, uh, you've been interviewed a thousand times about the goal, about Team Canada, 72, the whole deal. D- does it wear on you? Does it grate on you? Well, quite frankly, it hasn't, uh, Drew, mainly because it's such a, a positive time. Like, there's no downers to this. We won as a country. Uh, we won as players. Uh, uh, and, and so it's just a, such a uh, – has indelibly etched itself in the Canadians' minds that were alive at that time. And they like to talk about it. So uh, I, I think i got another 25 years in me. <laughs> well, it is. Uh, to me, it's a cultural phenomenon. I mean, you, you say the goal. Most people know what we're talking about. 1972 just seems so long ago, but yet it's so fresh in our memories. And do you think it has to do with the fact that there was the mystique about the Russians? No question. I, I, and I think that all led up to it also. Had we uh, won the games fairly handily, no one would have ever... Uh, remembered it, but when we were soundly defeated in Canada and Phil Esposito poured out his heart to Canadians, say, hey, we're trying. And then we had those 3,000 Canadians came over with us uh, and cheered us to victory. It just it gained momentum as time went on. And of course, in 72, Russia was trying to take over the world. Communism was infiltrating around the world, and so it took on an added dimension. It was it was uh, freedom against communism. It really was, or capitalism against uh, communism. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the highlights because I don't want to, you know, kind of drag this out. I, I hesitate to going over the same things that you've gone over so many times. But a couple of the highlights would be uh, uh, the Russian playing uh, the Russians playing mind games with you guys while you were over there. Well, they were masters at that. Obviously, uh, the end would always justify the means in that system, and so you did anything that, that you could do in terms of referees uh, waking you up, just anything to throw you off. Uh, would you actually get, like, the phone calls in the middle of the night at the hotel yes, room? Yes, you would. You know, your phone would ring, and, of course, nobody would be there. And I'm, you know, in, but in hindsight, I'm not sure how much of it was incompetence also. I mean, socialism doesn't work. There's no accountability. 
and uh, and so maybe we give them a lot more credit uh, than we should have for being uh, deceptive and those type of things. But it was unnerving. The only thing it is, it, it just it just really got us angry. What about unfair refing? Well, that was another. Uh, I mean, there were some of the guys that uh, we knew were we were going to have trouble with them. I mean, uh, and if you lived under that system also, and if you're a referee and they come and say, we better win this game or your family's going to be in Siberia, I mean, that's pretty good uh, impetus for you to probably call it uh, on behalf of the Russians. But the other side of the coin, uh, Drew, is that European hockey was different than NHL hockey back in 72. Uh, the European referees were used to calling that game. Our referees were used to calling our game. And so it, there was, I mean, there was a lot of places that, uh, in hindsight, that, okay, it probably wasn't, they weren't as bad as we thought they were, except for, and, and for the most part, they were half decent, except for a couple of guys. Kampala, we really believed that they, he was in their pocket uh, and and probably was. Sure. You're listening to the Drew Marshall Show. We were on the phone with Paul Henderson. And, uh, Henny, tell us about uh, the gold judge. He refused to turn the light on, I think. Was that not, not the deal? <laughs> well, when Cornway A scored at the 12-and-a-half-minute mark, he never did turn the, the light on, and, of course, that upset Eagleson. And then Eagleson recognized the guy. Apparently it was somebody that had defected uh, uh, to the Russians. And so, I mean, Eagleson was petrified that, you know, if we score another goal, if there's a close one, this guy's never going to put the light uh, on probably what you was instructed not to do as a game. You want your family to end up in Siberia. If it's close, you better not put it. And that's the way they would operate. So, I mean, Eagles can come down and try to do something about it. And, of course, uh, all, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a scene, but uh, thank goodness there was no doubt about it. Everybody (laughs) saw it get into the back of the net, so we didn't have to worry about it. All right, I want to know more about the scene, all right? What was the deal with him going across the ice and uh, into the stands? I don't know, what happened? It kind of exploded at one point. Well, what happened is Eagleson got upset because he didn't put the light on. And Eagleson uh, tried to make his way down. He wanted to go across and complain about, get this guy out of here. Well, the Red Army, I mean, the, the, the crowd are so controlled. I mean, they could, the, the only thing they could do was whistle. You couldn't stand up, yell. I mean, the guy that had the uh, that trumpet from Montreal, I mean, they tried to get that trumpet a hundred times, and the people would just keep passing it up and down the roads. But... <laughs> The, the, you know the, the the Red Army didn't know what to. Well, the great Eagles started coming down. Well, they you know anybody's doing this, he's upsetting, and so they grab him. And uh, Peter Mohavlich happened to see this, and so Peter rushes over there and whacks one of them on the arm and with a stick or something, right? Yeah, I mean they didn't know whether to shoot him or not. I mean they they were totally discombobulated. The Red Army, they like, what do we do with these people? And they were sort of looking around and. And, of course, before you knew it, there was five of the six of the guys. Peter jumped over there, whacked a couple of them, and pulled Eagleson uh, back onto the ice. And then Eagleson was really upset because, you know, he felt that we were getting hosed. And, of course, the referee in earlier, I mean, it had been atrocious. And so, anyway, we got him back to the bench, and uh, and things were not looking good But until uh, I decided, well, we better win this thing, and then it'll put it all to rest. So that's exactly the way it happened. <laughs> Were you, if I understand things right, you weren't actually supposed to be out there at that particular point in time? No, not really. Uh, the, the other line was out there. I mean, we'd come off, and he went with Esposito's line, and he did come to us and said we were up, you know, we were going to go back. 
but I didn't think Peter Hovlich was going to, I didn't think I was going to get another shift. I knew Esposito and Cornway weren't going to come off. So I stood up and I started yelling at Peter Mohovlich. Now, thank goodness Peter thought it was a coach yelling at him and he came off the ice. So <laughs> there you go. Did you, did you really, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, we, we start to think about the crystal ball questions like, did you think you were going to score the goal? Did you feel you were going to, you know, was, did you think God was talking to you? I mean, what was, I mean, you weren't a Jesus guy then, so I don't know, maybe God wasn't talking to you, but like, did you really think something spooky was going on? Well, it's hard to explain. I, like, and I, I haven't been able to explain it even to myself. <laughs> something within me impelled me to get on the ice. Like, right. I, I, like a tie is no good. I mean, we have got to beat these people. And I, I, like I, I had never done that before, Drew, in my life. Never called a player off the ice. You don't do that. The coach does that. Hmm. And I never did it again after that. The only time in my life that I ever called a player off the ice. And and so whatever was in me impelled me. And, I, and in 72, I had no spiritual dimension to my life whatsoever. Uh, but uh, who knows? You know, people say, do you think, you know, God had you score that goal? Well, I don't have a clue, but when I get to heaven, that's probably going to want to be the first question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fill me in on this. Uh, that would be an interesting question to ask God. <laughs> okay, uh, after the goal, you become instant hero, instant Mr. Canada. And, and to be quite honest, Paul, it's lasted for years and years and years and years. Uh, did you get a big head? I think I probably did. I think that uh, uh, there's no question I would have loved to have had a spiritual dimension to my life at that point because I think I would have held, I would have, uh, you know, handled a little better. But in defense of myself, you know, there's so many people coming at you wanting this, wanting that, and it it, it just got to be overwhelming. And... uh, you know, I, I could have handled it a lot better than I did, but probably got a little arrogant in a little places and, and got a little surly, you know, like, just get out of my face. You know, I need some, uh, you know, I need some private time. And my wife and I are, and my wife especially, is a very private person, and this invaded everything. And so, you know, just to sort of push back, I didn't handle a lot of situations in ways that, that, uh, that you know, brings back fond memories. Paul, did the, uh, did, were there some other players that gave you the gears and wanted to kind of tap you on the shoulder and say, look, buddy, just settle down here. I mean, sure, it was a big moment, but it was a goal. It was one goal. You're not Mr. Hot Dog here. Did you ever have any guys come up to you and kind of no, no, no. snap at you? No, not so much. Uh, no, I didn't have really players that get on me, but uh, um, I was just more, it was more away from the game than the game itself, probably. Right. Right. Well, I don't know how people do it, getting tugged uh, all different directions. I talk to a lot of various celebrities on this show, and uh, and I empathize because uh, it, it's just got to drive you drive you bonkers being pulled a million directions. Folks, we're on the phone with Paul Henderson, and you're listening to the Drew Marshall Show. Uh, when did the God stuff start happening? Well, it it, it was um, shortly after that. I came back and uh, and became disillusioned fairly quickly uh as a kid growing up uh grew up in as i like to say an economically challenged family <laughs> okay uh I, I hated being poor and uh, i really felt that i was created for the good life and you know if you, you know, i mean that's where it was at so the good life what's that that means to be do something you really enjoy doing i love being a hockey player it's uh 
having financial independence, not having to worry about money. And thank goodness, hockey players have played fairly well. I was good with my money. I was, uh, you know, we had no financial worries whatsoever, and the future looked fabulous there also. And I had a great marriage. I mean, I'm married today 43 years. If I had a choice of all the women in the world, I know I could never have made a better choice than the woman I married. And so you got a great family life, you got a great career, you're you're comfortable, you're able to travel and do those things. But I was I was a very frustrated uh, uh, individual, uh, a lot of bitterness and anger. I hated Harold Ballard, who owned our team, and I really didn't like myself either. I mean, I wasn't handling things the way I wanted to, and so it was. And you look, I mean, we didn't have a hope in Hades of winning the Stanley Cup. And you come back from just such a wonderful high, and you look at the season, and you just know there's no chance. If we make the playoffs, we're going to be fortunate. And so I, there was a lot of anger, bitterness in my life. And then, you know, when you're frustrated in that, you uh, and I was always a pretty good drinker, but probably started drinking a little more than I probably should have to try to deal with all the pressures. That's one way that you try to deal with the frustrations of the pressures and and, uh, you know, my first three or four beers, they taste pretty good and you're feeling pretty good. But then you have a few more and you wake up the next morning and your head is pounding. You quickly realize this is not the solution. And so you start looking around. And then uh, a good buddy of ours, Mel Stevens at Teen Ranch, uh, came across my path and really encouraged me to take a look at the spiritual dimension of life. And obviously, I was frustrated uh, so much at this time. That's what I decided to do. And so that started a a uh, two-year search drove him crazy for two years. Drove Mel crazy? Oh, drove him crazy. In fact, Janet, his wife at that time, said, you know, give up on this guy. He's just, you know, he's just going to drive you crazy. Why? Well, I, I like, I, I just had a lot. I was so skeptical of Christianity, uh, Drew. Well, there's lots of reasons to be, don't you well, think? Well, there were, certainly. And, uh, and so I was a very tough sell. And, and, you know, you can't commit intellectual suicide. I like to read, and so Mel was feeding me books. And, of course, I had myriads of questions. And I remember a couple of times I'd say, well, Mel, what about this? And he said, Paul, I can't give you an answer. I've never even heard of the question before. <laughs> like, you, you know, so. But the good thing Mel said afterwards, I drove him to his Bible, uh, and it was one of the great exercises of his life, trying to find questions that I was asking him absolutely drove him from the Bible, you know, drove him to the Bible because he told me, he kept telling me, the Bible is reliable, Paul. The answers are in the Bible. And of course, I didn't know the Bible. I said, well, okay, here's a question. If it's reliable, you know, what about this? And he'd, you know, I drove him, he'd spend hours and hours, and he'd come back and and gradually, gradually, uh, that it started to make more sense and more sense. Now, you're, you're lucky you bumped into a guy who's just as stubborn as you. Well, that's there, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, but, uh, but you know, the thing about it is, uh, uh, Drew is, is, as much as I could see it, he had what I wanted. Like, I could see it, I could feel it, he had it on the inside. He had this quietness, he had this peace, he had this contentment. And, uh, I mean, certainly, he had nothing from a materialistic sense. He was nowhere socially or anything like that. But when you get to know a person, you, he, here was a guy that I, that I quickly recognized. You know what? This guy is enjoying every day. This guy is, has learned to live lightly and freely. There's no bitterness about him. There's no anger about him. I mean, he's just, he's got this, uh, he's got this quietness about him. Drove me crazy. And, I mean, this is what I wanted. 
but I didn't want it to come to, from this, you know, spiritual dimension of life. There's got to be something, you know, uh, because, I mean, it just, you know, like this Christianity, the spiritual stuff, had about as much appeal to me as a good headache. <laughs> to me, it looked very, you know, very narrow. Yeah, did, did you have any God guys on the team at the same time? Oh, no, nobody, nobody. I didn't know anyone back then that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of guys that went to church on Sunday here and there, uh, mostly Catholic guys, and but it didn't change their life one iota. They were no different than anybody else that never went to church. In fact, in a lot of cases, a lot worse. Sure, sure. Well, we're on the phone with Paul Henderson, and uh, many of you have heard Paul's story uh, before. He's probably one of the one of the best communicators I've come across uh, in the world of pro athletes. Uh, just because you're a pro athlete doesn't necessarily mean you can communicate decently. And I think that's one of the reasons, Paul, is because you're you're a well-read human being. Uh, you're, how many books are you kind of do you kind of hunker down into in a year? Well, I, fifty was my goal for a lot of years. I backed off the last. Uh, I'm down to about thirty. I tried to read at least thirty to thirty-five books a year now. Wow! And how, how many on the bedside table right now? Well, I've always got I've always got a couple of books. I've just read a, a great one by George Barna called The Revolution. Hmm. What is happening uh, in, in the spiritual dimension in the in the United States today? Just a just a fabulous uh, read, and uh, I, I recommended it in my uh, communicator. Hmm. And uh, so I've I like history. Any I like leadership. Uh, like biographies. Uh, uh, just. Uh, so I, I'm fairly eclectic, uh, but obviously uh, probably 75% would have something to do with the spiritual dimension sure. of life. Sure. Well, you're fairly eclectic, and I'm fairly dyslectic, uh, so we probably make a good team there. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Paul, was uh, the the, um, the journey with your dad. And, and uh, you know, I think we all carry baggage from our families. Whether you like it or not, every parent screws up their kids somehow, right? <laughs> That's well, I have three daughters, so yeah. I, I can identify with yeah, that. Yeah, you, no, but you're, let's talk about your, the family you grew up in. What kind of dad did you have? What kind of mom did you have? Well, I was very close to my mother, uh, a lot closer to my mother than my dad, probably. My dad would be the, uh, he was just a big farm boy, uh, big heart, uh, went overseas uh, when he was 21, and my mother said he came back as a totally different man. He was a uh, he was over there for four years, and and he, uh, I mean, he just saw too much stuff, and he um, it really had a major league impact on him. When he came home, he wanted nothing to do with uh, uh, any kind of religion. Uh, he was a big, powerful man. He's a legend where we grew up. Feats of strength. Um, and uh, he had a pretty, uh, he was pretty, uh, you know, he had a quick trigger with his temper. Uh, would be a male chauvinist. I knew he really loved my mother, uh, but he didn't know how to treat a woman. Sure. I mean, just, you know, there were no books. and uh, Kind of like an Archie Bunker type? Well, uh, to a certain degree. certain degree that way. And, uh, but, uh, and was terrible with money. Uh, he made half-decent money as a station agent, but... Uh, you know, we were in debt up to his uh, our ears. You know, he, he, you know, he just he was terrible. And as it turned out, I blamed him. But it's, after he died, I found out my mother was just as bad, and maybe even worse. Hmm. And so it was. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, we were a dysfunctional family, and in, in in a lot of ways, I was the oldest of five siblings. And when you're poor uh, and you're the oldest of five, you don't get a whole lot of stuff. And so it was. Uh, it was not a good. Uh, 
it was not a, a great situation in a lot of ways. Uh, though, I, I mean, my dad had a lot of wonderful qualities. In fact, I wish I had some of his uh, good qualities. Like, like what? Well, he was, uh, you know, he was uh, a very uh, compassionate guy. Uh, I mean, he could be, he was quick-tempered at that. But he was, uh, I, I mean, he would really, really go out of his way to help people. Well, and you don't have that quality? Well, I don't know whether I would be, I, I, you know, is is quite, like people wouldn't be able to pay stuff. Uh, per, he was a station agent, and and uh, he would, uh, you know, you're supposed to pay for the stuff before you get it. And they wouldn't have the money, and Dad would uh, give it to them, and then, of course, they would stiff him. And, uh, I mean, that uh, set him back, and I... I, I, you know, like I, I looked at that and I looked at it as being weak. Like we're, we don't have anything at all here, and and I'm trying to get a new ball glove, and uh, you won't buy me a ball glove. I was the only kid on the ball the team that didn't have a ball glove, or I'd never get any new hockey equipment, and and uh, yet he would do this for other people, and so, uh, you know, I, like I really, I, it irritated me to no end. And uh, but now, when you get a little older, you recognize that geez, you know that that was pretty neat quality. You know that uh, maybe that was their livelihood or getting uh, you know getting a meal on the table. Uh, yeah. But I would tend to be a little more uh, okay. You know, work your arse off, get the money, and pay for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, but it, you said he had a short temper. Did he ever lay a beating on you? Well, no, no. He was so powerful. Oh, we'd get a, you know, he'd smack you. That's for sure. sure. I sure. mean, just like any other dad did at that time, but yeah. not not to the point where he would be uh, uh, abusive. It was more the the verbal abuse. I mean, and he scared the hell out of everybody. Hmm. I mean, everybody. And uh, I mean, you just don't ever challenge Garnet, and you don't get him upset. But no, I mean, he would just like kids growing up. A lot of times, I deserved to give a whack. Sure. And uh, certainly he would give you a whack, but he wasn't, you know, he never abused any of us. I mean, he'd have killed us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, so, it, was he encouraging at all? Well, he was sort of from the old school. You yeah. know, it was if I scored and if I scored three goals, I should, have, I should have scored five. Right. He was one of those guys that would always, uh, you know, and in hindsight that he, I think he, he wanted me to be a hockey player probably worse than I did. And so when I look back, you get a little more mature you look back and say, you know, the guy was doing the best he could with the education he had. I mean, he didn't have access to, access to books. He was not a reader. Uh, you, you know, finished high school. That's his, all the education he had. So thank goodness I lived long enough to appreciate him a lot more. But he took a bad stroke when he was uh, 42. I mean, he was a big, powerful man. And, and that affected his mind and affected his right side. And so... By the time he was 42, his life was basically over. He died at 49. Mm. And, and and I never really got to know him. You know, like I never really got to know what was in the inside of him because he he blocked out the war. He wouldn't talk about that. And so as a father-son, we never really, you know, talked about what I would... Like I never found out what was deep in his heart. We never... I never was able to, you know, able to get close enough to him to... You know, what did happen over there, Dad? Or why are you so against religion in that stuff? So I, that was, uh, you know, that hurt a bit. And then, of course, there was some baggage, like we all have. And uh, But the good news is I, I had to go back to his grave three different times. And there was tears, and, and I headed out with him. And uh, the third time, I knew I'd never have to go back again. And this was actually even before I became a Christian. 
But I had to go back to the I had to go back to the to the to the cemetery three times, and then I finally got it out. And then when, when I got well, it, well, hold on, what do you mean you had to? And, uh, well, some you had of the frustrations, some of the frustrations I had with them. Uh, you know, why did you do this? Or you know, you know, and uh, and then when I was able to do that, I guess just able to vent it all. Yeah. Then I was able to look at the good side, and then and because there was always the bad that was there. And then finally I got, and then I started to think about, well, you know, my dad was a pretty neat character in, in some ways. And so when I started to think about that, and now today, like I have very, very fond memories of my dad because I've thrown out all the garbage and I, and I choose to remember all the good. Good call, good call. But your dad never got to know the, the Toronto Maple Leaf, Paul Henderson, the, the, uh, the 1972 Skull the Gore well, goal against the Russians? Well, he died in 68. Died so, in 68, no, yeah, he missed it all. Okay. So he, he saw me play in the NHL. He saw me play for... Uh, uh, Detroit and Detroit, uh, and uh, he died. Well, I came to Toronto there, and he died in the spring of '68 uh, or the summer of '68, and I had been traded to Toronto. So he did see me play a few games with uh, Toronto the last ten or twelve. Okay, so he saw you make the show. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, very proud of me too. Was he? Oh, yeah. And expressed that? Oh, sure, 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 sure. Oh yeah! After I made the NHL, are you kidding me? He was as uh, proud as punch. Are huh. you kidding me? Plus, he would have. This would have been post-stroke too, right? Oh sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So as you said, he was a changed guy from that after that stroke. There was it, it probably took a lot of the snap out of him, did it not? Well, yeah. I guess. Uh, oh sure. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. It took uh, you. You take and your. Yeah. I mean, your his right side was semi paralyzed, and you know it obviously affected his mind to a certain degree, and that's and that you know and that ex, uh, you know probably me made his temper a little worse and didn't sure. handle things like he would say thursday it would be friday and you know every he, he meant to say friday and he'd say thursday well you know i what didn't make sense is that that's not right you know what the hell are you talking about you know like he would come back at you and for a while it took us a long time to recognize that it was just you know like and he would get so angry but he didn't you know it wasn't what he thought he was saying he wasn't saying yeah right and but he just you know, because of the stroke, and so that made for a lot of tough times too. Yeah. And as a kid, I didn't. I should have picked it up probably better than I did, but I didn't. We're on the phone with Paul Henderson here on the Drew Marshall Show, and and Paul, I, I wanted to know the connection between you growing up with this earthly father, and how that relates to the relationship you have had to process with your heavenly father. I know sometimes, probably with all of us, there's a connection there, because when we think of father, the first thought that comes to our minds are our earthly fathers. And so quite often we'll relate to our heavenly father in similar ways that we would have related to our earthly father. Any connections there for you at all? Any baggage you had to work through as far as getting your head wrapped around the good side of God as opposed to the the ugly side of dad? No, I was so far, like I said, Gru, I, I had worked through that. I would say by 1970, I had probably worked through all that. Right. And so I didn't start looking into the spiritual things to 73. So by that time, I was just looking at my dad as just a, a, a just a great guy. When You know, here's a guy that went to work every day. Uh, and he, I, he really didn't like his work, but he had a wife and five kids, and so he worked his rear end off. You know, and he tried to do the best he could and with the education, with the understanding he had, uh, I think he did a pretty good job. Mm. I mean, he was a terrible manager of money and, and, and you know, didn't understand economics very well, for sure. 
but I had dealt with all that, right. and so by the time I started looking into it, uh, you know, I, I you already recognized a... my dad really did love me, right, right, and his, and he did love his wife, even though didn't treat her very well and was a total male chauvinist. Uh, you know, so no, I had no okay. problem with that at all. What what put you over the edge to finally say, okay, I am going to surrender my life to the Creator of the universe? Well, it was a long battle. I mean, because, I, yeah, it was a couple of years of asking oh, yeah. a lot well, of questions, I and got, like I, I finally got down to the point where I really, I really believe God was who He said He was. I really believe Jesus Christ was a person, uh, came to Earth, died in my place died specifically uh, for Paul Henderson, and basically was inviting me to have a relationship with him. And and, um, and Mel kept telling me, you know, you can download this bitterness, the anger. You can learn to live lightly and freely, Paul. But the reality was, I was worried about it, because, you know, what are people going to say? There was no Christians, well, although Dean Prentice, by this time, Dean Prentice, who was playing for Minnesota, I'd heard that he had become a, a Christian, these born-againers, which I didn't even understand. But I'd, I'd played with Dean in in, uh, in Detroit. And so I, I, I met Dean one time, out of, and we were playing against Minnesota, and I, and I had a chat with him, and I could obviously tell he was different. But I thought, you know, he's sort of gone off the, the deep end type of deal, and I knew guys were making fun of him and everything. And so I thought, gee, if I ever do this, guys are going to make fun of me too. And and I and still I looked at Christianity as a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. And a lot of the don'ts were the things that I like to do. And so I wasn't even sure you could be a good NHL hockey player and be a Christian, and certainly you couldn't be a man's man. Yeah. I mean, this is so narrow. I mean, how can you enjoy life, all this narrow stuff? I mean, I just didn't understand it. And then, of course, the third reason I'd read by this time in the Bible that God said, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. He expects you to stand up and be a witness. Well, I knew there's no chance in God's green earth that I'd ever be able to tell anybody about this. Right. And so this went on months uh, months, and Mel kept telling me, you need to say, I do. Sort of like you said to Eleanor. Eleanor and I went together for four years. We had to make a decision. Either we're going to become husband and wife or go in our own separate way. And so one day we went to the front of the church and we said, I do. We committed ourselves to one another, and I became a husband that day. No more a husband today than the first day I did that. And Mel kept telling me, Paul, you need to say I do to the Lord. You need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. You need to ask him into your life as your Lord and Savior. And so March 12, 1975, after just months of agonizing and wanting to give my life to the Lord as a very frightened guy all by myself in the, my room, uh, my home, I said a simple little prayer. And, I, you know, it was basically, God, I, you know, there's much about you I don't understand, but I really believe you love me. I really believe you died in my place because I know I've done many things wrong, many things I'm ashamed of. And Mel told me that, you know, that you would wipe the slate clean. And so, God, I ask you to wipe the slate clean. Here's my life. I, I want to be your child. And in the same breath, I said, don't you ever expect me to tell anybody about this. <laughs> I'm going to be one of these secret service Christians, but... I want what Mel's got on the inside. And uh, hmm. are there now? Do you, is there a lot of guys in the NHL or involved with the NHL that you rub shoulders with today who, who are secret Christians? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, it's hard to say. Like I don't have a, a lot. To, my ministry doesn't take me much into that uh, into that arena. Right. Although I'm going to Calgary, I was up there and spoke in November and. 
at Jerome McGinley and myself are on uh, January 17th. Uh, I'm going to go out to Calgary, and uh, Jerome and I are going to tag team um, a little event out of there. And so, uh, I mean, Jerome is a guy that loves the Lord and, Great. and is willing to make a stand for it. But That's encouraging. Yes, but there's a lot of guys that have made, like Mike Gartner is... Uh, you know, as another guy that's really made a stand. Yeah. And, uh, you would think it'd be easier for guys to come out and say, "Yeah, I'm I'm one of these Jesus guys now," because there's a lot of well-respected professional athletes who are f- genuine followers of Christ. So, is it not easier for guys to come out and say it, or is it still the same tough macho stuff? Oh, it's still it's still tough. Are right. you kidding me? Yeah. I, I think Pinball Clemens has been. You know, there's been some football players like Damon Allen. And uh, Pinball Clemens. I mean, there's probably ten, twelve guys on the Argonauts that are very, very strong in their faith. Yeah. And, uh, it, and it just seems that, well, there's a lot of management art, too. In hockey, it's just, you know, we just really haven't made in, uh, inroads. But I think there's, uh, I was asking somebody the other day, I think there's about 28 guys in the NHL that would really come out and make a strong stand for the Lord. Uh, you know, like... Um, well, Marcus Nasland and uh, Shane Doan and Joe Sackick and uh, some of these guys are, you know, are really, really strong. Now, I would say there's probably another layer under there that probably have a spiritual dimension of their life, but don't have the courage or don't have the maturity uh, you know, to come out and make a stand at this point. It's quite often uh, when someone goes through some kind of trauma in their life or maybe a loss of a loved one or that they really start reflecting on life a little more seriously, right? Oh, for sure. Like, I had a guy in my office uh, yesterday. Here's a guy, uh, 42 years of age, and uh, uh, pretty successful, and uh, wakes up one day, and he said, you know, is this all life is all about? And, you know, married, he's got kids, and, uh, you know, he's just not content. And uh, and so I spent an hour with him yesterday and tried to encourage him. And, I mean, he's just looking for answers. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this is typical of, you know, a lot of the guys. I've, you know, we've got 700 men that meet weekly, and I would say 90% of them when they came, you know, like, what what am I missing? And usually a lot of times they, they get frustrated like I was. And a lot of times they have everything. Or it could be a car accident. They lose a child uh, or, uh, you know, your wife leaves you or something like that. And mm. then you, jeez, what's going on here? and you stop to take a look at things and you don't have any answers or you don't know how to handle adversity or loss and those type of things. Yeah. And So there's a myriad of different ways, but you're right. There is a lot of times that, that something traumatic happens and to get people to slow down and ask, start asking questions. Yeah, or you go the other way. And, and I often think about Ballard and why the heck he was so bent out of shape at messing up Christians. Well, see, I think that, you know, when I got a little older there and smarter, it turns out that his wife was a very solid Christian, loved the Lord. She died in 1969, and I think that Ballard got mad at God. How could you let such a wonderful woman die? And I think that he turned against God at that point, and he became, uh, you know, and he lost his keel. I mean, when she was alive, I mean, you never heard of him getting out of line. The family was solid. And when she died, Ballard lost his keel, yeah. and he became like a you know like a, a sailboat with no keel. The wind blew it all over the place, and of course, uh, had some bad influences come around him, and he, you know he, he just he became a buffoon. Well, he and what I mean, did he not ban Mel Stevens from the gardens? 
Well, you know, he, he you know, like Laurie Boschman. Laurie Boschman. Stuff, and so, uh, Traded away. I mean, were, were these just, are these false accusations? Are these rumors? Are these, you know, urban myths? I mean, no, no, trading no, Laurie no, Bo- Boschman what? was be the first. Well, I would be the first that sort of come along that, that, uh, uh, although I wasn't a Christian when I left, but I was not getting along well with him. Right. And then, but uh, did he get rid of Bosch because oh, he was sure a Jesus guy? Oh, sure he did. Yeah, yeah, sure he did. Yeah, yeah, that was the first one. But I mean, that's I mean, he got rid of a lot of other people. But, yeah. I mean, that was the excuse uh, at the time. But whatever came to his mind, I mean, he just yeah. he blew like the wind. So you know, I remember uh, watching uh, Don Cherry one night on television and. And he was praising Bosch. He was saying stuff like, you know, if, if that's what a Christian is, you know, gets into the corners and mucks around and goes, works hard, then give me more. Give me more of these Jesus guys. Well, he's often said that. He says, give me a team of Christian hockey players and I'll win. Yeah, right. And uh, see, Don Cherry's got a deep abiding faith. I right. mean, he prays every day. He uh, spoke for me uh, last year and just shared with the people. Don Cherry is absolutely convinced there's a God. He gets up every morning and thanks God for the day. Uh, Don Cherry is a very, very spiritual man. Yeah, yeah. But yet, I would say he would be from a different generation where that spirituality is held a little closer to his well, chest. Well, there's no question. Right? Like, you know, it would, I would have loved to have got him in one of our, uh, you know, discovery groups and discipled him. But, but he goes to church every Sunday, and, you know, we're all different. They're all walks are different. And, he's, and he will stand up and tell you that uh, he goes to church every Sunday. On the phone with Paul Henderson. Paul, you go to the same church as Hazel McCallion, I think. Is that I right? sure do. Boy, she's. Uh, I would not want to cross her. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're really smart, you stay on the good side of her. <laughs> she has lasted. We're going to try to get her on the show in the next uh, month or so. Uh, so, Just based on what you said about her, she sounds like a, like a lady who loves the Lord. Really. She loves the Lord. I tell you, her, her, in fact, her husband was one of the lay, uh, lay leaders in our church and a uh, very, very devout uh, man and... And that's the way she's run the city. She runs the city on Christian principles. Hmm. And she cannot tolerate mediocrity. She cannot tolerate indifference. She's passionate about life. She's passionate about her job. There's a right way to do things. There's a wrong way to do things. And uh, she will always take the high road. And Hmm. obviously very concerned about a lot of people. Is she perfect? No, she's not. But is she a good woman? Boy, she is a great woman. She sure is. Yeah, uh, Paul. Uh, back just uh, just kind of flashing back a little bit. I was thinking about your your dad not being alive for the big goal in '72, but your mom was, right? Oh yes. What was her response to all of that? Oh, she was. I mean, she was so proud of me, and I, like I was always close to my mother. Uh, are you saying Are you saying you're a mama's boy? Well, you could probably say that. <laughs> you could probably say that. Yeah, I was always uh, close to and. And Mom, she was one of those women that just lived for her husband and her family. I mean, she was just, her her husband and her family was what made her life go around. And when Dad died, I knew that she would never date. She would never, she was a one, uh, one... Uh, Man kind of lady. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so she lived her whole life, uh, and, and had st- she had some really tough... I mean, she had tough problems all her life. As a kid growing up, she would spend a month of the holiday, or you know, in the hospital with pneumonia. Oh. I can remember there, there was three of us. My dad worked night shifts, and he would take us, the three of us, to the station. And I would be about, I'd probably, you know, I'd be, we'd be five, three, and one, and mom would be in the hospital. And here's a guy that you know had to take care of three kids, and his wife in the hospital, and so, uh, I mean, uh, and but. 
you know, they persevered. That's when men were men, I'll tell you. And now, you know, when you start thinking about all those things, jeez, what a great dad I had. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have a listen to this clip and uh, see if it brings back any memories. In the small Ontario community of Lucknow, Henderson's goal had an even more special meaning. Mrs. Evelyn Henderson, the mother of the 29-year-old NHL veteran, said, when Paul scored that goal, it was like an atom bomb going off. And to celebrate the occasion, she had a cup of tea. At the arena in Moscow, Henderson was interviewed at ice level. It's hard to believe. I just can't believe it. It's, uh, i got to give a lot of credit to the five guys under the ice with Mike Sure, I couldn't have done anything without them. Ronnie and uh, Bobby Clark played tremendous with me. And it's got to be the biggest show of my life. I just can't believe it. I'll be a long time getting to sleep tonight, I'll tell you. All right, Paul, you scored the winner the other night. When you went to sleep, did you think it could happen again? No, never in my wildest dreams. Right. I was up, you know, we had confidence in our line, and we just said, you know, our line was going to play well. We just pulled the other team down and just wait for the breaks. And uh, our line really hadn't done that much tonight. We were maybe checking fairly well, but we hadn't scored any goals. So, uh, we just, that was the way our line had been going. We just been going all right. And uh, yeah, just can't believe it. Just can't believe it. Paul, I'll tell you right now, you know, when this series started, everybody said, well, it's going to be a piece of cake. But we now know that they are good hockey players. But similarly, you guys have come on so strong in the last three games. Well, I think so. I mean, we had a lot to prove. They, they sort of gave it to us in a couple of games in Canada. And, I mean, we always felt we were the best hockey players, and we still do. And, I mean, we just came back, and I think any time you're down two goals, going in the third, and come back and win the game, that shows you what, I mean, a little bit of drive. But I'd like to say I'm really proud of the Canadian fans. We just got telegrams and telephone calls and the sport here. It's just unbelievable. And, boy, I tell you, I'm very proud to be a Canadian. <laughs> a long time ago, Paul. Uh, who was that that was interviewing you? Uh, I think that was Johnny Esau. Right. I talk about being wired. I'm sitting here holy mackerel. I mean, we were so emotionally high. It was incredible. Uh, uh, you, know, you could tell it in my voice. You almost think you were on Benny's or something. <laughs> and yet your mom says it's like an atom bomb went off and she had a cup of tea. Well, she was an English gal and she loved her tea, I'll tell you. <laughs> Classic stuff from uh, back in '72, Paul. Uh, what are you doing these days? You're involved. Uh, I know your your hands are in so many things, whether it be uh, uh, helping out Teen Ranch or the leadership group or, or uh, running some marriage seminars with your wife. Uh, tell us all about it. Well, when I retired, uh, in, in uh, I, I got some uh, training in the states. I went to seminary, came back to Canada in '84, and started uh, uh, in full time Christian work and. Uh, Started the the leadership group uh, mainly drew to reach out to a guy successful people like I was uh, that didn't have the answers uh, didn't want to go to church uh, were skeptical about Christianity I wanted to provide a place for them to, a safe place where they could come and ask the tough questions and get together with a bunch of other guys and and see if there's anything to the spiritual dimension of life just the way Mel Stevens worked with me. And then when I we I became a Christian in '75 and uh, jumped to the Toros. And in 1976, the Toronto Toros went to Birmingham, Alabama. And I went down there and I got into a men's group. And this guy mentored eight of us. We met once a week, uh, 6:30 to 8 o'clock, which I could do today. And he taught us how to really uh, have a, a a relationship with the Lord, how to have a quiet time, if you will, how to study the Bible, read the Bible, how to make a connection, sort of a, it's like 24-7. Uh, God is memorizing scripture. God is encouraging one another. And he absolutely changed my life, uh, my priorities, and 
and uh, just really helped me to grow. Well, then, after three years, him and, and the pastor of the church that I was going to, they came to me and says, Paul, we really think that you should lead a group and mentor some of these younger guys, you know, that have just sort of looking in their spiritual dimension, and, oh, I can't do this, and I fought them like crazy, and, and but they really, uh, you know, Paul, you, you need to do, you need to give back a little bit, and we really think that you would, guys would respond to you. Uh, because you've come so far, and so anyway, stepping out in faith with much fear and trepidation, uh, I got eight guys, and uh, they gave them to me, and gosh, we just bounded together, and they would come and say, Paul, jeez, thank you, you're changing my life, thank you for encouraging me, and boy, I was getting such, you know, positive feedback, and these were businessmen, uh, that's what I think the Lord showed me, that Paul, this is what I've really called you to do, so I came back to Canada, and Started with three guys in uh, 1985, I guess it would be, and now we've got, uh, you know, probably 700 men, 85, I think about 85 groups now that meet weekly wow. in uh, in boardrooms, uh, never meet in churches, we meet in boardrooms, or, and uh, we talk about what it means to be a husband, a father, and uh, what it means to follow the Lord uh, and make your life count uh, 24-7. And the marriage stuff. Uh, yeah. that That's exciting for me uh, because that's... You know, if look, marriage is hard work. There's no question. You've got to work at it. If you put it in a, cl- a cruise control, you're going to cruise control right downhill. Uh, and and you and Evelyn have been married 43 years. Uh, Evelyn was my uh, mother. Eleanor is oh, sorry, my Eleanor. Wife. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you never married your mother. Okay, let's just get that straight. Yeah, we. I, I am so fortunate. Um, one of my and we speak together. Uh, we've been doing this for uh, almost fifteen years now. We'll do marriage conferences, uh, uh, weekends, whole weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In fact, the next one I think is over in Waterloo in the middle of March. We just finished one up at uh, Whistler. Hmm. It was really tough going to Whistler, and uh, yeah, but yeah. sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta sacrifice, yes, suffer for the Lord. Yeah, I gotta do that, yeah. you know, every once in a while. <laughs> But we really, really have, uh, I mean, we've worked at our marriage, and uh, I mean, we're just in great space, and we apply biblical principles, and so it's just, it's wonderful to be able to minister together with your wife, and so we do a lot of that, and uh, and, uh, quite frankly, probably get more positive feedback uh, from the marriage stuff we do than anything we really do. It's just, it's just a wonderful privilege to be able to you know, travel, stay in nice hotels, and uh, and minister with your wife. Yeah, no, that that is exciting to be able to do that. And you know, I keep thinking, when you're long gone, I mean, you're you're so much older than I am. It's not even funny when you're long, <laughs> when you're long gone. The 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 residue of your life, Henny. I mean, it's just going to be huge, and and I can just imagine you showing up and and God going, "Hey, you're here, boy. We've been waiting for you, man." <laughs> Well, I tell you what, he's a very patient God, because I tell you what, uh, if he wasn't a very faithful God, I would have been out of here a hundred times, because I've been a, an absolute idiot as a Christian, Drew. You can identify with this, <laughs> yeah. I know, but I mean, I have been far from perfect, and many days i got to go back and say, oh, goodness gracious Lord, I just, you know, I blew that so bad, I tuned that guy up, and I should never have tuned him up, I should have been loving him, and... And, you know, the Lord says, yeah, Paul, but I know what's in your heart. Yeah. I, I'm willing to forgive you. Get back up and please, please don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but, unfortunately, I'm pretty A-type personality, and so a lot of times I 
should keep my mouth shut and I don't and get myself in trouble. Well, you were named appropriately. I, I, can, I can imagine me getting, getting to heaven and asking to meet Paul and them saying, which one? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's definitely one of my heroes, but, I mean, he, uh, he had a lot better handle on Christianity and living it than I did. I but he was a lead, lead follower, get the hell out of the way kind of guy, too, wasn't he? Well, I think so. Yeah. You know? It, yeah, I mean, he just was a take uh, charge and didn't show a lot of patience sometimes. And yeah. I can identify with that. Yeah. Uh, in closing, Paul, and thank you again for your time. I love chatting with you. We've, we've chatted a number of times over the years, but uh, you're a genuine guy. You're a big wig who's always given the little schmucks like me the time of day, so thank you for that. Uh, your DVD that's out. Yeah, we just finished this, Drew. I wrote a book a few years ago, actually a couple of them, but we just did the, what we call the Paul Henderson story. Uh, it's a one-hour uh, DVD, uh, and it's uh, right from being born on a sleigh, uh, growing up in a little town, obviously playing for Detroit and Toronto, and then Team Canada, and then obviously uh, the ministry today and uh, what we're doing. And so a lot about family in there. Uh, Mel Stevens obviously is uh, is in the uh, in the production, and I am very, very proud of it. We had something like 26, 27 hours of footage that we had taken over the last probably five years and uh, was able to condense it down, and it's a, it's a pretty neat little story. I, I'm very, very proud of it. You get to know uh, uh, Paul Henderson and his family pretty well. That's that's brilliant. Okay, so are you, is this a fundraising endeavor for some things? Are you selling it privately? How do people get a hold of it? What is the best way? You well, know? uh you know, we use it to luck now. We were up, uh, I sold 300. We went up to my hometown. We did a little tournament up there and helped them raise some money. We sold 300 that weekend. Wow, everyone in town bought one. And, well, <laughs> almost. We sent another 100, and they went in a day and a half, and so they phoned me yesterday and wanted another 200. And, uh, you know, Teen Ranch, we, uh, you know, I give a lot of the money away from them, but it's just to sort of to tell the story. And obviously, the, the leadership group, uh, we hope to recoup some of the cost, and we sell them, and you uh, and mainly it's when I speak, uh, we have them, but you can go to our website, uh, www.theleadershipgroup.ca, and, and uh, we, uh, you know, we've got them in the office there, and so uh, it's a great uh, stocking stuffer, I'll tell you that. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, theleadershipgroup.ca is the website you want to go to to order this DVD and uh, find out more about the leadership group, obviously. And uh, can they find out about these marriage seminars uh, you and Eleanor yes, do? Yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> yep, your family life. Uh, um, it comes under the um, just go to the uh, family life which will be on there too there's a link to family life and uh, and all that we do there you get the whole shooting match oh that's great listen Henny what do you want to say to our listeners as a final farewell we're approaching Christmas uh, I, I, I'm trying to cheer people up I gave a lady behind the Tim Hortons counter a bit, bit of a big tip and she's just there every day and she just keeps her head down and gets the job done and does things properly and she just lit up man i was just so cool to see her light i've never seen her smile just she just lit up and then i walked out of the tim hortons and uh, a guy was racing another guy down the street just to get in front of him so he could slam on the brakes obviously he was a little bothered with his driving style and decided to give something back and and i see people cutting each other off and getting bugged with each other in parking lots it's it's a weird time of year well, it really is. You know, something. if I could say something to them, uh, I've been really fortunate. I've traveled to 46 countries, and there's some beautiful countries, Australia. Well, we got together in Australia. In fact, you sure even did. had me speak in your church uh, over in Australia. I, yeah. What a great time that was. That was good. What a beautiful country. I, I've been to Switzerland. I, you know, 
But I'll tell you what, what Canadians need to know, Drew, we are so blessed. I, I believe that we have got one of the finest countries in the world. We, we have stability in this country. We have so much to be thankful for. And I think when you just slow down and you recognize how fortunate we are, the tragedy is we get so many hurting people out there. Hmm. And it, it is neat if you do have the wherewithal to reach out and help somebody else. My wife and I, we just took uh, our church, tries to put uh, little packages together to less fortunate people. And so uh, we just took a couple of, uh, you know, those little things over there, little packages that they'll give to a couple of adult men. A lot of people like to give the kids, and so we do that. So what I would say is just find somebody less fortunate yourself and help them out. Hmm. And I guarantee you, you put your head on the pillow at the end of the day, you're going to say, Boy, am I ever thankful that I can help somebody else. Well said. I appreciate you uh, so much, Henny. I really do. You've been an encouragement to me in my life for 20 years. So uh, thanks, mate. You're most welcome, old buddy. You All take right. care. Talk to you soon. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paul Henderson on the Drew Marshall Show.